Thanks to Green Chef for supporting Future Hindsight. Green Chef's expert chefs design flavorful recipes for your lifestyle that go way beyond the ordinary. Go to greenchef.com slash hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. In a time so defined by conflict, Anna Marie Cox, host of Crooked Medias with friends like these, wants to seek out forgiveness and reconciliation in all its forms. Every Friday, join Anna as she explores questions like what it means to make things right and who deserves to be forgiven. Through this lens, you'll hear the stories of death penalty advocates, family feuds, making peace with the planet, and more. Check out with friends like these wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. New episodes out every Friday. When women seek executive office, they often have to satisfy both gender stereotypes because they have to show that they are strong enough and yet they can't seem too tough because then they will potentially put their likability in jeopardy. And we know from our research that it's a non-negotiable. And that means that voters will support a man even if they don't like him, but they won't vote for a woman if they don't like her. It's very much like walking a tightrope in a lot of ways. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Amanda Hunter, the executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, whose mission is to advance women's equality and representation in American politics and in the field of contemporary art. I wanted to know just what it takes for a woman to get elected and the Barbara Lee Foundation has the research to explain why it's been such an uphill battle for women to reach the highest executive office. For more than 20 years now, the foundation has conducted nonpartisan research on the obstacles and opportunities women face when they seek office. They do so because their founder had this big dream. Our founder, Barbara Lee, realized that women face additional barriers, particularly when they seek executive office. And her dream has always been to see a woman in the White House. And just to give you a little bit of context, at the time that she started this work in the late 1990s, only 16 women had ever served as governor in the United States. Now we're up to a whopping 44, but that's compared to more than 2,300 men. So there's still a long way to go when it comes to women's representation in governorships. So what have you discovered in the research that you've done about why we have this uh, vast disparity and who reaches governorships? We have studied every gubernatorial race involving a woman candidate since 1998. So there are a lot of common themes that we've seen throughout our history. And fortunately, there have been some shifts as well. But women seeking executive office are really navigating the same criticisms and stereotypes in a lot of ways that women faced nearly a century ago. And just to put it in perspective, Nellie Taylor Ross was the first woman elected governor in the United States in Wyoming in 1924. And during her campaign, an objection was raised, I'm afraid she isn't strong enough. 
Our research shows that it's one thing for voters to support a woman to be part of a deliberative body as a decision maker, like somebody in Congress or the Senate or the state ledge. But if a woman is going to be essentially CEO of her city or her state, voters need much more evidence that she's qualified. And partially it's because for hundreds of years, those roles were dominated exclusively by white men, older white men. So voters have what I call an imagination barrier sometimes. They just can't picture a woman in the job. And that's why when we see a woman governor, it often opens the door for more women governors or the same with a woman mayor because it breaks down that barrier in voters' mind. One finding that unfortunately has not changed in our research is that Voters assume that men are qualified. Men can just release their resume. Women have to prove that they're qualified over and over. They have to justify exactly what they've accomplished, and they have to talk a lot more in detail about their background, particularly on economic issues. Okay, so you've touched on a lot of things here on being strong, on knowing your economic issues and on having a resume that actually speaks to the skill set that is required in being a governor. So let's go with being strong first. Like what is the difference between strength and toughness and how does that translate to the campaign trail and to actual governance? That is such a great question. When women seek executive office, they often have to satisfy both gender stereotypes because they have to show that they are strong enough and yet they can't seem too tough because then they will potentially put their likability in jeopardy. And likability is a word that's kind of thrown around. Sometimes it can be used in a little bit of a sexist way, but we've studied likability for almost 10 years at the foundation. And we know from our research that it's a non-negotiable. And that means that voters will support a man, even if they don't like him, but they won't vote for a woman if they don't like her. So it's very important that women seeking executive of office have to project confidence. They have to stand up for themselves and show that they're strong and yet not be tough and alienate voters. It's very much like walking a tightrope in a lot of ways. Can you give us a little bit of a concrete example? Because this projection of being strong, it's so abstract. Like what's a good example where it really resonated and the message got across that she was a strong candidate and or will be a good, strong governor? Well, I think that's a really great question because part of it is voters saying, I'll know it when I see it. And it's hard to pin down. I think a really great high profile recent example of a woman showing strength was now Vice President Kamala Harris during the vice presidential debate reminding Mike Pence that she was speaking. And she did it in a way that was polite. It was measured. She was not angry. And yet she was firm and she held her ground. And we know from our research that voters want women to be professional and calm when they call out sexist behavior, for example. And so standing up for themselves or standing up for someone else are ways that we've seen voters interpret women showing strength. That's a great example. Actually, one of the things that I was really surprised to read in your research was that there's a perception that women should not be silent when they are being treated in sexist ways. For example, somebody is hurling insults at you or talking over you. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I was really surprised what the research bore out. 
Isn't that fascinating? I was completely surprised at that as well. Secretary Clinton and others have talked about how they've just kind of ignored it. And that's always been their understanding. We decided to look at this issue because so much has changed in the past four or five years when it comes to the culture around women running for office. One thing that was really positive in that research is that a majority of voters acknowledge that women face sexism in politics. And that seems like a positive shift, that there's an awareness. Voters actually want to see women respond to sexism. If it's in line with her values, she can show strength by addressing it in a calm and professional manner. If something happens where someone does something sexist to a woman candidate and she ignores it, that can actually be seen as a sign of weakness. So it's a leadership test in a lot of ways for voters that women can pass. And the interesting thing is voters don't differentiate women calling out sexism or dealing with sexism from other difficult situations they may face on the campaign trail. So while for a woman candidate, it might feel very personal and very difficult to navigate a sexist insult or situation for a voter, it's just one other chance for a woman to show them how she can stand up for herself and in turn, how she may stand up for them. Oh, that's very well put. So what are the maybe the most common misconceptions about women who are running for office? One of the biggest misconceptions is that women are just sitting around waiting to be asked to run like wallflowers. That's actually a myth. That's not true. What we've seen is that women run for office to solve problems. And one thing that we've seen over the past several years is that women have been activated into politics in their communities. Maybe something affected their family or their school. And before they know it, they're running for office. That's why in 2018, we saw not just a record number of women elected to Congress, but women from different professional backgrounds, women that came from the medical field, education field, military backgrounds, et cetera. And so that's been a really exciting development. I don't think any of the women in Congress were worried about waiting their turn or waiting to be asked. They were just looking around saying, who's going to fix this? Oh, wait, I think I'm the best person to fix it and jumping in. That said, There are still long held stereotypes about what a politician looks like and who is qualified to run for office. Even when women do things like raise a lot of money or have high polling numbers, they can still face diminishing comments like, well, she may have raised a lot of money, but it only came from a couple of big donors or she's polling well, but there's really no substance to her. We see those kinds of diminishing comments directed a lot more towards women, and that's really eroding their credibility. And that's because men are assumed to be qualified and women have to prove it. Yeah, that is so fascinating, right? I saw a comment, I think, by Kirsten Gillibrand, where she said something like, yeah, any 33-year-old man would be like, oh, yeah, maybe I should run for office and just does it. But any woman who considers it thinks about whether she has the credentials, whether she has the credibility and or the strength and the money and all these things and has like a 360 degree view of even answering the question, should I run for office? And I remember at the time she said something like, you know what, women should just run for office. Just do it. Any man would just do it. (laughs) Why wouldn't women? Absolutely. And that also gets to the heart of some of the structural barriers that women still face when they run for office. 
men still have access to deeper fundraising networks than women. In order to have access to the large sums of money that are necessary to raise to run for national or statewide office, women have to tap into those networks. And we found that especially women of color have to run what we call a campaign of belief. Women have to spend extra time convincing donors and thought leaders that they're even electable. And we found that women have to spend much more time calling the same donor lists that men are able to maybe call once and raise more money. And that's because voters need more evidence that women are qualified. So what is the evidence that you have found to be most compelling for voters that women need to display in order to be considered electable? Well, we found in a couple of different electability studies that the top metrics for voters, and this was pre-COVID, were that a woman can handle a crisis and can get results. And we also found that having a deep understanding of the everyday challenges that Americans face is important when voters are assessing a woman's electability. Voters know that women tend to be very much in touch with kitchen table issues, especially if women have families that they're caring for. So that is a benefit for women. Handling a crisis is something that we looked at separately, and we found that Voters know men can come in and really laser focus in a crisis, but because women are dot connectors and multitaskers, they can take a broad view and women are listeners. It's very important to voters during a crisis that women listen, not just to experts, but also to affected populations. So much of this is work that women are already doing. It's just about the way that they position themselves. If you watch the 2020 primary debates, for example, you would notice that the women senators in particular hammered their qualifications and they used very specific numbers and metrics and talked about co-sponsoring legislation, getting bills passed, working together. They used action-oriented language. That's what voters need. They need women to hammer their qualifications and accomplishments over and over. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really interesting to read is when you did the survey about uh, whether women can handle a crisis and you divided the people that you surveyed into Republicans, independents and Democrats. And it showed there a huge disparity among Republicans for preference for a man as a governor in a crisis. So is sexism a partisan issue? Sexism is not a partisan issue, unfortunately, and it's also not even a gender issue. Women have internal gender bias just as much as men do. What we saw in that crisis research was that voters have very traditional and long held stereotypes in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of men and women. Voters assumed that men would be better at dealing with a mass shooting simply because they figured men knew more about guns based on nothing. And we also saw in that research that voters thought that women would be better at handling a teacher strike because women would understand more about school. So as much as we see that there has been progress, when you actually start talking to voters, you find that Voter stereotypes are still very, very much entrenched in a lot of ways. 
So if you could wave a magic wand and educate the electorate, what would you say about women running for office that people dismiss as a fact? I, if I had a magic wand, would want to make voters check themselves when they make sexist comments. And for example, we've seen people make comments about women appearing angry or women in debates seeming like they were passionate. And I always ask people if they say anything about a woman, would you say that if she were a man? And there's definitely men in politics who have reputations for being surly or grumpy and it's seen as adorable. I even saw one man described as adorably grumpy. I don't think anyone would describe a woman as adorable if she appeared to be remotely grumpy. So we all need to think about that as we're making assessments around politics and make sure that any decisions that we're making are not impacted by gender bias or racial bias. It's so hard though, right? Because the vernacular is so deeply ingrained within our society. You know, the vernacular of sexism, one of the most common retorts about Hillary Clinton, when she lost, they were like, oh, but she was a deeply flawed candidate. And I always say, as opposed to Donald Trump, he's not a deeply flawed candidate. You know, when you return it, right, then they're like, oh, right. Yeah, he's even more flawed. I wish people would, uh, like you said, check themselves and hear what they're saying, because I think half the time, I don't know if they really believe it or whether they're just repeating things that they've read in the paper, honestly. Before we continue our conversation with Amanda Hunter, I want to share that we've teamed up with Green Chef, the first USDA-certified organic meal kit company. It's owned by HelloFresh. I love switching between the brands, and with a wide array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. Now you can enjoy both brands at a discount. Go to greenchef.com slash hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Everything is handpicked featuring organic veggies and high-quality proteins, delivered to your door pre-measured and mostly prepped in insulated packaging. What I love about it is that I cook more complicated meals that I wouldn't otherwise prepare. Cooking the bulgogi-style beef tacos with my son was a snap. The mushroom stock concentrate and bulgogi-style amino sauce added a deep, rich flavor to the beef, and the creamy ginger sriracha aioli added a little kick to each bite. Make leading a healthier lifestyle easier than ever with satisfying home-cooked dinner options that work around your lifestyle, not the other way around. Go to greenchef.com slash hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Talk a little bit about the other work that you do. How has your research shaped your strategic partnerships and your grant making? Well, since Barbara really has always sought to build a pipeline to the presidency for women and to encourage more women to run for office, so much of her grant making focuses on that. And one really exciting development since she started this work in the late 90s is that 
we have tougher decisions to make now because there were far fewer women running for office. There were far fewer groups doing this work. And so now we really have a chance to get out there and meet other nonpartisan organizations that are training women to run at different levels in the pipeline, different groups that work to promote women from different backgrounds that tend to be underrepresented. And then even for our research over the past several years, we're able to develop hypothetical women candidates and test with voters so that we're able to have more intersectionality in our research. And that's increasingly important as we move forward. So in your mind, where are the most promising places for 2022 for gubernatorial races? Oh, well, there's going to be so many. And next year is going to be a challenging year all around, certainly because the stakes feel really high. Also, because we are coming out of some of the most dire crises that our country has faced in a generation, not just the pandemic, but also the ensuing economic crisis, the care crisis that has come out of that. And it's going to be very challenging for anyone running for office, especially someone who has a political record to defend and to be able to communicate to voters how they have impacted things. Because a lot of times, Voters just don't understand. We did some research on women voters and how they were impacted by the pandemic. And women have lost out to promotions at work. They've had to take themselves out of contention for different positions because of the child care crisis. And a majority of women, especially under 40, have talked about the mental health challenges that have come with it. So voters, by and large, are exhausted. And it's going to be very challenging to motivate people in 2022 and get them excited, frankly, to inspire them and give them hope. It's a tall order. Yeah, definitely. Well, since you mentioned childcare, one of the most common criticisms lobbed at women candidates is that they can't both raise a family and also run a government. What is, in your mind, the most effective rebuttal to that? When you talk to women candidates, anecdotally, any woman on both sides of the aisle, they'll tell you if they are out in public, people will come up to them, mostly women, and ask them, what is your plan? How are you going to balance caring for your children? What works and what we've seen is that women need to be transparent and talk about what their plan is, not to get defensive, not to get too into the weeds, but to say something like what works for my family may not work for other people. I'm fortunate that I have our parents, my in-laws that live close by, and they're able to help us and then get back to the issues. But not everybody has that resource. And that's why it's so important that we expand access to pre-K. Because at the end of the day, voters want to know what you're going to do for them. They don't really want to get into the weeds on your school drop-off plan. So it's definitely a balance. Oh, yeah, that's good advice. Definitely don't get into the weeds. <laughs> but <laughs> so in your mind, what makes a woman 
more attractive than a man in general for the average voter? Because like you said just now, the average voter hasn't actually changed uh, their attitude towards electing women into office. But maybe there is the kind of thing where they'll be like, okay, actually, I do want a woman specifically for this purpose, because this is the issue that we're facing right now. Absolutely. Voters know that women are in touch with their lives in a different way because no matter what a woman's personal life looks like, in a lot of ways, women are doing the brunt of the emotional labor in a family. Men just don't tend to have that same kind of emotional labor. Voters internalize that. They realize that women are more in touch with kitchen table issues and their lives. So even though it can be a burden sometimes for women candidates that have to navigate that fine line between caring for family and talking about that and governing. It also can be a benefit that voters know women understand how hard it is to balance caring for their aging parents and finding the money to pay for daycare. We did research in 2017 and voters were fed up with the status quo. When voters feel like nothing is getting done, I want to change. They see women as a chance to shake up the system. So that's a positive for women. So if I were running for mayor of New York City right now, what advice would you give me? Oh, gosh, definitely highlight your qualifications and particularly your economic credentials, because voters tend to assume women are weak on economic credentials. Even if you don't have a lot of experience with traditional governing when it comes to a budget, find ways that you can tailor your own experience to show voters what you've done. So maybe you had to balance the budget at work. Maybe you owned a small business and you created jobs. Highlight those things over and over. That is definitely number one. And then remind voters of your qualifications. Use action-oriented language And make sure that they know that you are a team captain. Have your team around you. Be accountable. Let them know that at the end of the day, the buck is going to stop with you, but that you're listening to people and you're really going to collaborate as a leader. All good advice. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to promote and or support more women candidates? First of all, just be aware of your own internalized gender bias and racial bias and have conversations with your friends and family about theirs. Being able to have those conversations and holding space for that is one way that we're going to actually affect change. And then support women candidates in your community. I know not everybody has time to be out there volunteering on campaigns, but maybe there's somebody that has children at the same school as you that is running for school board, or maybe there's somebody locally that you think is really smart and really great. Do what you can with the time and the resources that you have to support women that you believe in. And the nice thing about the remote world that we're in right now is you can volunteer on a campaign to make phone calls and all you need is a laptop and a cell phone. Yes, it's definitely much easier nowadays to get engaged and do voter outreach. So um, if there's one piece of advice you could say to a woman who's thinking about running for office, what would that be? Run for office. Women have long been told 
just wait, just do this one more thing. You're almost qualified enough, but maybe if you just got another degree, maybe if you just volunteered on this board, governor Janet Mills of Maine has this kind of funny slash not funny anecdote that she talked about in 2018 because she was in the state legislature in Maine for a long time. She was attorney general of Maine and then ran for governor. And she said for years, people said that just do this, just do this. And then when she was talking about running for governor, people said, oh, I think we need to shake it up with a fresh face. I think you're too entrenched. And she said, but I'm qualified. But when you look at the women that are running for office and that have won and are serving in Congress, even some of the women who have lost, they're superstars. Their resumes are extraordinary and they bring a different lived experience to the table that their male counterparts do not. So that's very important. And then my second piece of advice would be if you lose your election, so what? Because for years, it's been accepted that for men, losing an election is not just an acceptable part of their career, but it is almost a prerequisite to a successful career in politics. Every president after President Lincoln, except for Donald Trump, lost a major election. So women need to not let that stand in their way and run again. They need to not internalize the failure and move forward because our research shows that voters don't hold it against women if they lose an election. That is a really good reminder. It's true. I think we don't think of men as losers if they don't win an election. We, we are happy to vote for them again. Maybe next time he'll win. And so we should think the same thing about women. So here's my last question. Mm-hmm. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? So many things. I think seeing all of these incredible women that are sacrificing so much, that are serving in office at all levels, and then looking at the next generation, when we go and speak to college students or seeing high school students, it gives me so much hope that young people, they're not interested in putting up with the barriers or even entertaining them that my generation accepted. And I think that's where we're going to be able to see transformational change. I think you're right. I think a lot of people are motivated now. And I agree that a lot of young people are not afraid to mix it up and get in there. Absolutely. And we also are really interested to see because women tend to run for office to solve problems. This year and a half has been extraordinarily difficult, but I wouldn't be surprised if more women than ever are activated into politics. And from what we have heard from our partner organizations that train women candidates, they are getting barraged with inquiries of women that want to train to run. So I think that is another positive that will hopefully come out of this really challenging, unprecedented year and a half that we've had as a country. Yes, I hope so. Like you said, I think women are good problem solvers. They're bridge builders, they're team players. And I think they do a lot of things right that we forget they do. I think it was maybe Reese Witherspoon. She said something like, you know, if you want to get anything done, any child knows you're going to ask your mother. You're not going to ask your father to do it. (laughs) It's true. We actually, in our crisis research, 
we did focus groups and I was actually very disappointed because millennial men, I assumed would be progressive, but they rated men as much higher as leaders during a crisis. But the millennial men in focus groups talked about how their moms were really good multitaskers and problem solvers. So that made them give women credit. So it is true that people recognize that from the women in their lives and the women in their families. Yeah. Well, I think we just are, you know, so deeply steeped in sexism all around the world that it's really difficult to shake that belief with our actual lived experience of knowing women to be perfectly capable of being leaders. Absolutely. And Barbara is always really inspired by the Marion Wright Edelman quote, you can't be what you can't see. And one positive over the past few years that hopefully will change things is seeing more women than ever run and serve in office. And even seeing for the first time two women sitting behind the president when he addressed Congress, hopefully all of those little things are going to chip away at those long held stereotypes. Seeing our vice president coming down the stairs of her airplane wearing Converse. It was a sensation and it was a meme, but it was important because it was against the stereotype of what a vice presidential candidate looks like. And so hopefully all of those things will break down that imagination barrier. Yes, I hope you're right. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I think it's fascinating what the research has revealed about our biases against women running for executive office. There's a massive amount of cognitive dissonance between how women are experienced in real life, such as being a mother who gets things done, and how they're perceived conceptually, like being weak and unqualified. Also, there continues to be a double standard when it comes to the qualifications of women who are running for office to satisfy both gender stereotypes for both men and women is really not reasonable. So why are men held to a lower standard? And when are we going to stop doing that? When I think of strong women like Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Chancellor Angela Merkel, I wonder how long it will take us here to finally elect a woman as president. What I do know is that the more we support women to run and to elect them to public office, the sooner we will get there. I know that some of you are dedicated listeners of this podcast, and I want to know what you've done to become more engaged in your community. Drop us a line at hello at futurehindsight.com or tweet to me at Mila Atmos and let us know. The first 10 responses will get a gift card for a latte at Starbucks. Next week, our guest is Glinda Carr, co-founder and president of Higher Heights for America. We discuss the importance of being continually engaged in our democracy beyond election day, the immense political power of black women, and the benefits of normalizing the election of black women to higher public office. What we're looking for now is to ensure that we see our voices, our votes, and our leadership in our American democracy. And so we welcome Black women who want to harness their political power to the political home for Black women to change the face of leadership. We recognize there's never been a Black woman serving as a governor in our country. We've only had 16 Black women serve in statewide executive offices in this country 
six are currently serving. We should take the lessons learned over the last six years of record gains and build a strategic plan for the next 10 years. So by 2030, what does American democracy look like? Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Zach Travis. Listen to us every week on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.